You're listening to Jesus is Everything, the teaching ministry of The Way, Eugene. All that to say, I digress. For our time today in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, this is what struck me as I was preparing. I was at the river yesterday down in Cottage Grove above Dorena Lake there at Turtle Rock. Great spot to go swimming and jumping off the rocks and all that kind of stuff. And I got there early. There was going to be a birthday party. And so I volunteered to go stake out the spot. And I did a horrible job. There was just people everywhere. It was just, I couldn't have found a worse spot for the kids to be sitting in. I mean, there was just pot being smoked everywhere and people drinking. And Anyway, regardless, I think that's just what happens at the river on hot days. But suffice it to say, I got there early. So I got to do the people watching thing, which I love to do. I, I like being that guy who kind of just sits back and just watches the stories unfold. And when you're doing that, you get to listen to a lot of conversations because folks, frankly, just don't talk quiet enough. And so there's all these conversations that were taking place. And uh, there was one conversation I overheard that really caught my attention for a very specific reason. There was a gal talking to a couple of the ladies and she was saying, you know, she was making reference to being in the river and how she had recently got baptized. She'd been baptized recently. And I was like, sweet. Like my ears totally perked up and I was about ready to just like go try and join the conversation be like, Hey, cool. Like what's the Lord doing in your life and all that kind of stuff. But the, the conversation took a very, very quick turn. She first said, yeah, I recently got baptized. But then she went on to say, and and pardon me, this is a a paraphrase, but this is basically what she said. She said, I got baptized recently, but then the people who baptized me started telling me how I was supposed to be live my life, how I was supposed to live my life. And I told them no effing way. And so, and so there, there was this response, there was this sort of duality going on to where I was just like, oh sweet, someone got baptized. They're like a follower of Jesus. And then my heart just sank when they went, don't tell me how to live my life and, and, and forget you church. And the gal that had invited her to church and discipled her and all these kinds of things. She just said, don't tell me what to do with my life. And unfortunately what, what comes out of that story and that experience and hearing that is you walk away with this attitude of going, Oh man, did that person even realize what baptism was about? Did that person even realize who Jesus is, that he's not some get-out-of-jail-free card, that if I believe in him and get baptized, I can continue on in my life and do whatever I want? No, that when you believe upon Jesus, you surrender your life, and you are now subject to his authority. And you just sort of grieve that person and go, oh, no, you missed it. You missed the idea. But it's a very common story in our culture, even in the church, specifically here in the West. And uh, hearing that conversation reminded me of a pastor from Washington, D.C. named Kevin DeYoung. And he had this quote that I had saved a while back, and this became the perfect application for it. Uh, Kevin DeYoung says, one of the hardest things for rights-focused, entitlement-assuming Westerners to grasp is that we cannot approach God any way that we want to. We cannot approach God any way that we want to. Now, we've learned in Paul's letter to the first Corinthians that when we're in Christ, we have freedom. We have liberty in all things. But that doesn't mean that we have freedom to simply do whatever we want, assuming that, oh, Jesus died for my sins, and so I can behave and act in any way that I want to. Now, 
What it also doesn't mean is that there's some form or system or liturgy of worship or devotion to Jesus that we have to follow once we're saved. Not that those things are bad. Liturgy is actually really good. It's modeled after scripture and the imagery of Jesus. And so there are practices and traditions that are healthy for us to practice in the Lord. And so we have freedom, yes, in Christ. All things are are lawful, Paul would say, but not all things are beneficial for me or for others as well. And so that statement of like, you know, I got baptized, but don't tell me how to live my life. Boy, that really becomes the embodiment of that sort of entitled culture and character that we can often have that says, I can approach the Lord however I want. One of the worst sort of culturally appropriated, I'll say fake Christian, pseudo-Christian moments in culture the last several decades was when those hats appeared a couple years ago that said, Jesus is my homeboy, right? And people started wearing that like, you know, hey, Jesus is my homeboy. And some of it was like ironic Some of it was, of course, the church being geeky as they always are going, yeah, we're going to sort of fit into culture and we'll use language and ideas that will attract people to Jesus. Hey, Jesus is my homeboy. How do you justify that? Well, the Bible says that Jesus is the friend of sinners. Yes, that's true. He's the friend of sinners, but he is also Lord. He is master. He's the one whom we submit to out of reverence out of fear, out of obedience, out of humility. We submit ourselves to the Lord in those things. Mark Isaiah 46, Isaiah 46, verses 8 through 10. I'll read it to you. Never forget that this is the attitude or the personality of God being expressed to his people. Isaiah 46, verses 8 through 10 says, Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. God is not someone to be taken lightly. He is not someone to to not uh, or, or to think about in such a way that we would be flippant and 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 think that we have this open relationship that allows us to be free in how we communicate with him. There is a responsibility that we have to acknowledge God's utter uniqueness, which is His holiness, that He is altogether different than we are. He's outside of time. He's outside of space. The Bible declares that his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways, the way that he acts, is so much higher than what we can comprehend or understand, which causes in us the responsibility to approach him with, the Bible says, fear and trembling. Fear and trembling. And the thing is, is that, man, we don't want to get mixed up with that attitude of uh, of disrespectful familiarity. Yes, Jesus is the friend of sinners. Yes, Jesus calls us brothers and sisters. He says, I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends. There is an intimate relationship with Jesus that we have. There is a friendship with Jesus that we have. 
But we also have to remember that Jesus in Revelation 19 is not the hippy-dippy love everybody Jesus that people try and make the gospel Jesus out to be. Revelation 19 says that Jesus is coming seated on a war horse, his robes dipped in blood with a sword that is coming out of his mouth that is going to destroy all those who do not believe upon him for salvation. Now, there are people within the faith who want to disassociate Jesus with anything violent. They want Jesus to be the peace-loving hippie who sort of floats around, right? There is that element to Jesus, that he is peace and love and grace and mercy, but it's also coupled with the equality of his wrath coming against sin, coming against unrighteousness. And because that's true, we don't take Jesus lightly. Now, all of that, believe it or not, came out of me hearing that conversation at the river. But here's the, the, that was the first wave of things that sort of came over me as I considered what I heard. And the second wave was this, as I considered what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, that short of Jesus himself, no one gets everything right. And so as I, as I considered that, it, it just became this thought that like, man, I wish I could get that permanently tattooed on my heart and on my mind, that no one gets everything right. This is true in relationships, whether it be friendships, marriages, uh, brothers and sisters. Man, no one gets everything right in relationships. We all say things where we stumble over our words or step on our words or, or just completely you know, yard sale it and just say things that are dumb or treat people poorly. We don't do everything right. That's true about leadership, people who are in charge at work or teachers or, or, or just in your family, fathers trying to lead your family in the way of the Lord, mothers trying to take care of your, your children, all those kinds of things. Man, we don't do everything right all the time. That's true spiritually as well. We have to remember that that we don't always do everything right. All you have to do is look through the, the Bible. You could do a survey of scripture, Old Testament and New, and you could just, in fact, I did this study one time at a men's retreat where I just went through all the characters of the Bible who, uh, who were expressly failures. Men in the Lord who were chosen by God for his purposes, who utterly just face planted, just messed things up. And you could start all the way back to the father of the faith, Abraham. And go, Abraham screwed things up royally. How many times did he tell uh, uh, kings in various lands that Sarah, his wife, was actually his sister, risking the fact that she might get taken by that king as a, as a wife? Foolish, Abraham, dumb. And how many? And the, the story of, of the conflict in the Middle East even now, as Abraham's trying to take control of the promise that God has given him and his wife to bear a child, Sarah says, I'm too old, I can't have kids, it's not working out. Here, take my servant Hagar. And Abraham goes, okay. How many times? Go on and think about Moses. We've talked about that recently. Moses, who was called the one to redeem his people, he was called to lead them out of the land of Egypt, out of captivity and slavery. What happens? He gets frustrated and angry at the stiff-necked Israelites. God tells him to speak to the rock who spiritually was Jesus providing water for his people. Instead of, instead of just speaking to the rock and asking for Jesus to provide for the people, he struck the rock a second time, disobeying God in his anger at the people. And God said, because of that, you don't actually get to enter into the promised land. 
Moses screwed things up. We don't even have to go into detail about David. David like has an affair and impregnates a woman and then kills her husband to try and hide his, his, his sin. David was just an absolute wreck. Says that he was a, a bloody man. He didn't get to build the temple to worship the God that he wanted to build because it says that he was a bloody man. He was a man of war. You can take it into the New Testament as well. Peter, our beloved Peter, the disciple. How many times he stuck his foot in his mouth? Jesus actually said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Peter, who says, I'll go to the cross with you. I'll go die for you. I'll do all the things that you're going to do, Jesus. Peter ends up rebuking the Lord incorrectly. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. How many foolish things did he say? The idea is, is that not everyone gets everything right all the time, even spiritually. I think one of my favorite examples of that is in 2 Chronicles chapter 32. You don't have to turn there, but mark down maybe for some meditation time this week. Read through chapters of uh, 2 Chronicles 29 through 32 and read about King Hezekiah. In the history of Israel, the majority of the kings that were over the nation of Israel the resounding impression that we get is that they were mostly failures. In the description of the kings of Israel, most of the time, overwhelmingly, it says that they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. There are very few kings in the record of the history of Israel where the scripture says that they did what was right in the sight of the Lord. Hezekiah is one of those kings where he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. After a long drought of spiritual deadness in Israel, Hezekiah became the king at like 26 years old, and he reestablished the, the sacrifice offerings to the Lord. He reestablished worship to the Lord. He reestablished the priesthood and the singers and the musicians who worship the Lord. Hezekiah did all these great things. But then in 2 Chronicles 32, it says that God gave him a special sign, a blessing in answer to a prayer of his, and that Hezekiah was prideful in his heart and didn't accomplish all that the Lord had planned for him to do. So much so was he prideful that it says that he brought the wrath of the Lord upon himself and upon the nation of Israel. Now, ultimately, he humbled himself and the Lord relented. He held back his wrath from the people. But here's the point. You could be the most accomplished spiritual. You could be the best super Christian. You could be the most prayerful, studied person, worshiper in all the world. But you have to realize that we are not right all of the time. No one gets it right all of the time. Now, here's the thing. As we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it seems at times that as we read through the New Testament letters, especially the words of Paul, it seems like he spends a large part of his time either criticizing or correcting the churches that he's writing to. He spends a lot of time going, guys, you're not doing this right. You're messing this up. You're not living correctly. You need to correct your behavior, how you treat each other, how you honor the Lord. There's a lot of correction. So we do understand that no one gets everything right all the time. But the other side of the coin is this. Not everyone gets everything wrong all the time either. Not everyone gets everything right all the time, but not everyone gets everything wrong all the time either. There's two sides to that coin. So here's what we find uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 this morning. The two things that we're going to look at 
from the Apostle Paul to the church are, number one, a compliment. Paul gives a compliment to the church. But then number two, Paul also gives a correction. Those are the two things we're going to see this morning, that Paul gives a compliment to the church, and he also gives a correction. Now let's take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2. Paul says, now, I commend you. He's giving a compliment. He's praising the church. He says, I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. Here's, what's Paul, here's what Paul is affirming, what he's complimenting the church on. He's saying you, as the church that I established, you remember me. You remember the things that I've taught you. You remember the things that I uh, gave as an example to you. And you observe the traditions that I handed down to you. This is what Paul is, is laying out as a compliment. You know, he would tell the Philippian church in Philippians chapter 1, verse 10, that he, he would pray that the love of the church would abound, that it would grow, and that the church would approve what is excellent in each other. You know, if you ever are in a situation where you're going to have to correct someone, where you're going to have to uh, perhaps even speak a little bit harshly to them or say something that's very, very serious, one of the best ways to enter into that conversation is to start with a positive. You know the whole thing about you want the good news or the bad news first? Starting with the good news is always a great option. Enter into those types of conversations where there's going to be a correction or some sort of rebuke. And do it with a positive. Approve something in the person. Tell them something you appreciate about them. And then drop the hammer and say, but I have this against you. <laughs> That's sort of the technique Jesus would use in the book of Revelation as he's talking to the different churches in Asia Minor. He would say some good things and, and commend them for some things. But then he would go, but I have this against you. This is what you messed up in and this is what you need to correct. So even Jesus gives us that model. But Paul starts here with this approval of what is excellent. Paul has just said at the very beginning of chapter 11 or the very end of chapter 10, depending on how you interpret it. Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Jesus Christ. Paul says, I'm giving you an example to follow after. And he then gives the compliment to the Corinthians of whom for nine chapters he's had to ream upside, one, up one side and down the other and correct them for all sorts of horrible behaviors and activities. But Paul stops and goes, but actually, guys, here's what you're doing really well. You remember me. You remember my teachings and my words. And you continue in the traditions that I established for you. Here's the deal. I don't like tradition for a couple of reasons. I don't like repetitiveness, right? To say, hey, every Christmas Eve, this is what we do, the same thing. We sing these songs, we open one gift, they wear these pajamas, whatever the traditions are, whatever they might be. I'm not a huge fan of that. That's the first thing is, is I didn't grow up with those kinds of traditions. And so to me, it's like, I don't know, let's do something different this year. That's sort of personality number one. The other personality is don't tell me what to do. That's sort of the whole tradition thing where I'm just like, no. I don't want to do that just because your family's done that for 25 years or generations. Like, don't tell me what to do. That's sort of ingrained in me. But here's the thing. What we hear Paul saying here is that traditions are good. There are things that are laid out for us ahead of time by those who have gone before us, whether it be our parents, grandparents, a pastor that we learned from when we were young, whatever the case might be. 
There are traditions that are good. I just made reference to Paul saying, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Imitation is not just the sincerest form of flattery, as the saying goes. Imitation, it's a sincere form of saying that you appreciate someone. You're flattering them. That's great. Imitation is not just the sincerest form of flattery. Imitation is how discipleship works. Take note of that. Discipleship is this uh, catchword in our culture right now in the church. Tons of people writing books and giving seminars and talking about uh, discipleship programs. Our church needs a discipleship program, and typically how that shapes out is that someone finds a book and a workbook, and you read through a chapter of the book, and you answer the questions in the workbook, and you have a little bit of dialogue, or, or, and you go through it for 12 weeks or 13 weeks or whatever it is, and you go through a class, and now you have officially been discipled according to what a church says, hey, this is our form for discipleship. That's not a bad thing. But the truth is that when we look in terms of Jesus and his disciples, this is what discipleship looks like. Jesus gave an example and a model of ministry and life. And he said, leave what you were doing before in the world. You who were fishermen, forget about fishing for fish. I'm going to make you fishers of men. You who were sinful tax collectors, were cheating people to get more money and keeping your focus on worldly things, leave those things and simply, what did Jesus say? Follow me. Imitate me. Copy the things that I'm doing. In fact, Jesus would go on to say, because of his relationship with his disciples, you're going to go out and do even greater things than I did. Imitation is discipleship. Paul says, imitate me. Do the things that are of Christ in me. Ignore the bad stuff because there's bad stuff as well, but imitate me as I imitate Christ. And so Paul is commending the church, and we'll get into it in a later study on a Wednesday, I'm sure, about some of the specifics about this. But what Paul is talking about in this first half of chapter 11 is the tradition or the practice of observing appropriate spiritual authority. Paul says very specifically here in chapter 11, verse 3, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Paul then goes on to describe this relationship and what it looks like for us as men and women in the church, in Christ, that God is over everything. God the Father, the creator of heaven and earth, is, has authority over all things, including Jesus Christ, his son, God in the flesh. God has authority over those things. Jesus has authority over mankind, over men specifically, but over mankind, his creation. And then Paul talks very specifically about the relationship between husband and wife. That a husband has this responsibility of spiritual leadership and authority that he's supposed to lovingly cover over his wife with and lead her into. Paul goes on and defines this very specifically and says that although a husband has the responsibility to lead spiritually, that men and women are co-equal. There's not one that's greater, greater than another. Paul says, yes, uh, 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 men are responsible in those relationships, but he says man came from woman. Man was born of a woman. And so there's this equality of relationship between men and women. Paul is not a misogynist by any sense. 
And so Paul commends the church in saying, you have followed the traditions that were laid out for you. You are imitating me as I imitate Christ in that there is appropriate spiritual authority taking place in the church. As as sort of a, a caveat here, please understand that in all of the discussion of that first part of chapter 11, talking about men with their heads covered, women's hair being a covering, short hair, all these kinds of things, please understand that this section of scripture is not about wearing hats in church. Okay? This is not about wearing hats in church. Praise the Lord. There are some people who want to take this and go, what it means is that you're supposed to be respectful of the Lord and not wear a hat in church. That's a fine cultural uh, tradition. That's a fine uh, practice in the places where that's applicable. We hear, like it says at the very end of that section in verse 16, Paul says, if anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. If you want to argue about this doctrine, you want to argue about spiritual authority and turn it into something physical like wearing a hat in church, Paul says we don't have any of those kinds of traditions. We're not contentious about that. We don't argue about those things. Neither do any of the other churches. So if that's the tradition of your church that you don't wear a hat to church, that's fine. That's absolutely okay. But if you do wear a hat in church, that's okay as well here. I'll say that right now. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about spiritual authority. And so Paul gives a compliment to the church, saying, you followed the practices. You've imitated me as I imitate Christ. Well done. Good job. Keep doing that. But then Paul offers a correction. First the good news, and then the bad news. Drop down to verse 17. Paul gives an encouragement in those first several verses, and then he offers a correction to the church, beginning in verse 17. And look what he says. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, It is not the Lord's supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Here's the picture we have to understand. We have these little cups that we use for communion because of COVID, and typically we would have a tray with a little cracker on it, a little cup of juice to represent the body and blood of Jesus. And that's how we observe the Eucharist, the fellowship of thanksgiving to God for Jesus and his sacrifice. That's awesome. That's our tradition. That's how we do it. But I want you to understand the context of this as Paul is talking about uh, taking communion and having fellowship and communion in that early church there. What they would do is when they would gather together on the Lord's day, it wasn't simply a, you know, meet at 10 o'clock, sing a couple of songs and have someone talk about Jesus for a while, then take communion and go home an hour and a half later if we're lucky. No, it was the Lord's day. They They would spend hours in prayer with one another. There would be possibly multiple speakers who would share from the word as as encouragement and instruction to the church. 
They would sing a hymn or two. Music, music actually wasn't that big of a part of the early worship of the church. But when it came time for communion, this was only for believers. We've talked about this recently. Anybody who was not a believer in Christ was not welcome to participate in this, but they would come and they would have communion together. And it was combined with what was, was called an agape feast, a love feast. The church would gather together and quite literally break bread. They would have a meal, and here's what, how that would work. This is where church potlucks came from. I'm dead serious. Everyone would bring something from home, and they would bring it to the gathering and share the food that they have. Everyone would bring the wine that they had from home, which they would make themselves, and then they would bring it, and then the deacons would take the wine that everybody brought and mix it into one big uh, bottle for everybody to share from in remembering the body and blood of Jesus Christ. But the meal was a shared meal. It was this agape feast. And it was a redemption of what took place in pagan worship. Oftentimes, in worship of pagan gods and pagan idols, there would be these big festivals, these bacchanalian displays of, of lust and the flesh and gluttony and people just gorging themselves on food and getting drunk and doing lascivious things. These were the worship of the false gods, the pagan gods. And the church would redeem that and say, no, we're going to have a love feast in the truest sense of loving Jesus and loving one another. And here's the point, sharing with each other. We're going to bring from what we have, we're going to sacrifice that and we're going to share it with the rest of the body of Christ. And here's where Paul says, I cannot commend you in this because when you come together, some of you, before the time that is given for us to share, the food that you brought from home, you start eating it and you don't share it with anyone else. And some of you are taking the wine that you brought to share with everybody to represent the blood of Jesus and you're getting drunk on it. He's like, what? Do you not have your own house that if you want to behave that way, you can go do it there rather than disrespecting the gathering of God's people together? This is what Paul says, I can't commend you in. And the final point of that is that Paul makes reference to this idea that there were different levels of economic stability in the church. There were some who had more than others, and the things that they had were better. The food that they had was nicer. And so rather than coming and sacrificing and sharing their good food with those who were less fortunate and poor, they would go, yeah, we brought food, but we're going to eat it. This, I, I'm not going to share my steak with the guy who only brought peanuts. Like, that's not a fair trade. Like, they would become selfish and go, no, I'm going to eat my own food. You eat your own food. I'm better than you. My wine's better than yours. And they weren't sharing. And so Paul says, I cannot commend you in this. This is the correction that Paul gives to the church. And he lays out why this is such a serious issue. What's the big deal? I earned it. It's my stake. Why do, if I want to share it, that's fine. But if I want to keep it, it's mine, isn't it? In the formation of the church, that was one of the unique things that drew people toward Jesus was this unique relationship that Christians had with one another where they were willing to sacrifice what was theirs for the good of others. They were willing to give of themselves sacrificially without desire for return. They were willing to give and go, no, this is all from the Lord anyway. 
And so we're just going to give so that people can be blessed. And this is why Paul says specifically in this agape feast and the Eucharist, the Lord's table, this is why it's so serious. Verse 23, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-three. Paul says, for I received from the Lord. Jesus spoke to Paul directly and said, this is what I received from the Lord. What I also delivered to you. I modeled this for you. That the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, mark this, this is the phrase to be serious about. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The word proclaim is not just make a statement. It is to preach something. You all, as you come to the Lord's table, are a preacher of the death of Jesus Christ. You may not preach in the sense of opening up the scripture and and expositing that for people, explaining the scripture for people, but when you come to take the body and blood of Jesus represented by the bread and the wine, you are preaching the death of Jesus. You are proclaiming it to God himself in remembrance. You are proclaiming the truth of Jesus' death to the angels who are present here, even in the gathering of God's church. Do you realize that when we come together, God says there are angels who look into the things of man. They're interested in what we're doing. They worship God in heaven. But what we're doing as the church is unique in God's creation. It's something that the angels don't participate in in the way that you and I do. That's why it's such an honor and blessing to come together as God's people. That's why God says, don't forsake the gathering together of yourselves, as is the manner of some. What we're doing is special and unique here. And when we take the body and blood of Jesus, we are preaching to even the angels who are looking into what we're doing. When we take the body and blood of Jesus in communion, we are preaching to Satan and to the angels of darkness, demons, the death of Jesus Christ until he returns again. And we are proclaiming for anyone who enters into this fellowship who does not yet know Jesus as Lord and Savior, we are proclaiming and preaching to them that Jesus died to pay the penalty for sin. We are proclaiming again and again and again the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he died to save sinners. That's why communion is so important. That's why it's so important for us to practice it regularly is because it's a sermon that each one of us preaches every time we partake of it. And so Paul makes the statement and he makes it abundantly clear that he cannot commend the church. He has to correct the church and remind them the purpose for what they're doing. And so in verse 27, he says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. What he's saying is that when you don't consider the value and worth and importance of the bread and the cup. It's as if you're guilty of putting Christ on the cross. If you don't honor and respect and give value to what we're remembering, it's like you're not even saved. 
It's like you're not honoring the Lord and what his sacrifice represents, our salvation. And he goes on and says this. He says, let the person examine himself then, and so eat the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why when we take communion, oftentimes we'll do it together, but a lot of times We'll, we'll say, okay, we're going to take communion. We explain the purpose. We remind each other what it's for. And then we'll say, hey, now I'm going to sing a song to give you time to go meet with the Lord. And then you take communion when you're ready. Why we do that is because of this very verse that it says, it's time for you to discern your own heart. To go, Lord, what do I need to be corrected in? Lord, what do I need to confess What do I need to get off my chest, off my heart, and confess, Lord, I've been unfaithful. I've sinned against you in these things. That's the time to do it. To take note of yourself and go, oh, I see. This is where I've been far from the Lord. This is where I've uh, transgressed against God's law. Lord, forgive me of those things. I remember this is what Jesus died for. That's what Paul is saying. That's why we give time in taking the communion elements. Paul says in verse 30 that because there are those who have not done this, because there are people who have taken communion flippantly, they have not given worth to the sacrifice of Jesus, the body and blood of Christ. This is what he says, and this is scary. Verse 30 says, that is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have even died. Now, there's some debate among scholars about what that means or the result of why that is, but I think suffice it to say on a simple reading, Paul's being very clear. He's saying, listen, because you haven't honored Christ, because you haven't given worth to the sacrifice of Jesus, you're feeling the effects of it in your life. Some of you are sick and ill physically. Do you realize that when our life is spiritually out of balance, that it affects the other parts of our life. Every human being is made up of uh, the physical, the emotional, the mental, and the spiritual. There's a balance in our life. In fact, we're told, Jesus tells us, that we're supposed to love the Lord with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our soul, and with all of our strength. There's multiple parts of our life that we have to have in balance and in alignment When we're physically hurting, when we're physically not caring for ourselves, that affects our mental state. It also affects our spiritual state. Emotionally, when we're in turmoil or conflict, that affects us physically. People who are worriers are often more sick than those who are not worriers. Spiritually, when we are out of alignment with the Lord, when we haven't given honor and worth to the Lord, when Jesus isn't the focal point of our spiritual life, we may suffer physically or emotionally, or mentally. I believe that's one of the reasons that mental illness is such an issue in our culture today. Mental illness, you ask them, well, is it because of vaccinations? Is it because of the hormones and the food? Why do we have more cases of mental illness now than we've ever seen before in history? I believe it's because of a lack of spiritual balance in people's lives. I I believe it's because people aren't submitted to Jesus in their life in such a way that they can deal with the emotional and mental and physical rigors and trials of life. And so Paul says, some of you are sick and ill. This is why, it's because you haven't given worth to the table of communion. And some of you have even died. 
That's a, that's a, that's a, that's a big statement. That because some of you in the church have not honored the Lord at the table of communion, you haven't given worth to Jesus in your life, you've actually died. Now, some believe that that's God's divine judgment upon those people. Perhaps that's true. Perhaps it's just the effects of their life being out of alignment spiritually and it affecting other things. But at the end of the day, that's what Paul says, is that that's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. And then he goes on in verse 31 and says, but if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. He's not trying to be confusing. He says, if we judge ourselves rightly against Jesus and our need for salvation, our need to be forgiven, then we won't be judged for our sin. Catch my drift? If we judge rightly who Jesus is as our Savior in our confession of our sins, then we won't be judged for those sins because Jesus bore them on the cross, which we're representing in the body and blood of Jesus at the table of communion. He finishes in verse 32 and says, but when you are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, wait for one another If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. And then he says about the other things, I'll give directions when I come. We end with the thought that we started with. We don't get to come to the Lord however we want to, willy-nilly. We come to the Lord with reverence for him, honoring the sacrifice of Jesus at the cross for our sins, And we also come together honoring one another. That in this fellowship of believers in Jesus, we would care for one another. We would be a people that are so uniquely and utterly sacrificial in how we live life that those who are outside of the church look into the doors of the lives of the church and the people in the church and go, hey, I don't have anybody in my life who's available to me when I'm hurting. All the people that I party with or hang out with or all my buddies down at the river, when things get tough, I don't know where they, they're not around. They don't have words to encourage me. They don't know what to do other than pass me another beer. But what they see in the church is that when someone's hurting, man, there's people who are coming alongside and, and beseeching God. They're praying for them. When someone's destitute and just times have have hit hard, the collection that's gathered in the church, the offering of financial worship to the Lord is used to help people in the church make it financially. When someone has a lack of something, somebody else in the church says, I'll go hungry to make sure that that person has food on their table. That's one of the things that historians marked about the church that was so unique in that Roman culture, which was very modern and very much like ours. Do, 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 get, get, get. He who dies with the most toys wins. Like that was the culture of Rome and the Roman Empire. And the Christians were so utterly uniquely different. It was noted that if one of the members of the church didn't have something, others in the church would fast for two and three days so that there was food that they could give to the family or the person who didn't have any. That's a kind of social justice. 
That's a kind of, of social reform and help that starts in the heart of people through the conviction of the Holy Spirit, the example of Jesus given to his disciples and the apostles that Paul and the rest of the apostles gave to the church, that the church hands down through generation and millennia, that the tradition is that we as God's people care for one another in that way so that the gospel of Jesus Christ becomes attractive to all who hear it. That God, through his Holy Spirit, would draw people to himself. This is what we preach, and this is what we proclaim in the Eucharist, the table of communion and fellowship and thanksgiving with the Lord.